Thanks very much. I'm really glad to be here already for the fourth or fifth time. So let me go directly to my topic. There is a wonderful expression in Persian, so I read, war, war nam nihadan, which means to murder somebody, bury his body, then grow flowers over the body to conceal it. In 2011, we were witnessing and participating in a series of shattering events, from the Arab Spring to the Occupy Wall Street movement, from the United Kingdom suburban protests to Breivik's ideological madness in Oslo. 2011 was thus the year of dreaming dangerously in both directions. There were emancipatory dreams mobilizing protesters all around the world, and there were obscure, destructive dreams propelling racist populists all around Europe, from Netherlands to Hungary. The primary task of the hegemonic ideology was to neutralize the true dimension of these events. Was the predominant reaction of our media not precisely a war nam nihadan? The media were killing the radical emancipatory potential of the events, or they were obfuscating their threat to democracy, and they were growing flowers over the buried corpse. This is why it is so important to set the record straight, to locate these events into the totality of what is going on today. What totality? According to Hegel, repetition plays a precise role in history. When th something happens just once, it may be dismissed as a mere accident, as something that might have been avoided through better handling of the situation. But when the same event repeats itself, this is a sign that we are dealing with a deeper historical necessity. When Napoleon lost the first time in 1813, it looked he had just bad luck. When he lost the second time at Waterloo, it was clear his time was over. And does the same not hold for the ongoing financial crisis? When it first hit the markets in September 2008, it looked as an accident to be, to be corrected through better regulations. I was here that on October, and I having a debate with Bernard André Levy, and I remember how he said, oh, this is just a minor problem, I'm sure the new President Obama will fix it immediately with some better laws, and so on and so on. Now it is clear that we are dealing with a structural deadlock. How can we find our way in such a confusing situation? Back in 1930s, Hitler offered anti-Semitism as a narrative explanation of the troubles experienced by ordinary Germans. Unemployment, moral decay, social unrest. Be behind all this stands the Jew. That is to say, evoking the Jewish plot made everything clear to ordinary people by way of providing a simple cognitive mapping. Does today's hatred of multiculturalism and of the immigrant threat not function in a homologous way? Strange things are happening. Financial uh, meltdowns occur which affect our daily lives, but they are experienced as totally opaque. And 
the rejection of multiculturalism introduces a false clarity into the situation. It is the foreign intruders who are disturbing our way of life. There is thus an interconnection, I think, between the rising anti-immigrant tide in Western countries and the ongoing financial crisis. Clinging to ethnic identity serves as a protective shield against the traumatic fact of being caught in the whirlpool of non-transparent financial abstractions. The true foreign body, which cannot be assimilated, are not foreigners, it is the self-profiling machine of the capital itself. There are things which, this is why there are things which should make us think in Breivik's, the Norway guy, you know, the killer, Breivik's ideological self-justification, as well as in inter, uh, international reactions to his act. Breivik is anti-Semitic but pro-Israel, since for him the state of Israel is the first defense line against the Muslim expansion. He even wants to see the Jerusalem temple rebuilt. Uh, his view, Breivik's view, is that Jews are okay as long as they, there aren't too many of them. Or, as he wrote in his manifesto, I quote, there is no Jewish problem in Western Europe, with the exception of the UK, as we only have one million of them in Western Europe. Uh, the United States, on the other hand, with more than six million Jews, 600% more than Europe actually has a considerable Jewish problem. What are we to make of this? A key is provided by the reactions of the European right to Breivik's attack. The mantra of these reactions was that, of course we condemned his murderous spree, but we should not forget that he addressed legitimate concerns about genuine problems. Mainstream politics is failing to address the corrosion of Europe by Islamicization and multiculturalism, or to quote the Jerusalem Post, we should use the Oslo tragedy, I quote, as an opportunity to seriously reevaluate politics for immigrant integration in Norway and elsewhere. This is crucial. A reference to Israel is, of course, implicit in this evaluation. A multiculturalist Israel has no choice to survive. Apartheid is the only realistic option. The price for this properly perverse Zionist-rightist pact is that in order to justify their claim to Palestine, Zionist representatives of the State of Israel has to acknowledge retroactively the line of argumentation which was previously in earlier European history used against the Jews themselves. The implicit deal is here. We, radical Zionists, are ready to acknowledge your Western European and so on intolerance towards other cultures in your midst if you acknowledge our right not to tolerate Palestinians in our midst. The tragic irony of this implicit deal is that in the European history of last centuries, Jews themselves were the first, let's call them like this, multiculturalists. Their problem was how to survive with their culture intact in places where another culture was predominant. 
Incidentally, one should note here that in 1930s, in direct response to Nazi anti-Semitism, Ernst Jones, the main agent of the conformist gentrification of psychoanalysis, engaged in weird reflections on the percentage of foreign population a national body can tolerate in its midst without putting in danger its own identity. It's quite shocking how he, who was so trusted by Freud, accepted the Nazi problematic. He just said, maybe the Nazis are a little bit too radical, maybe we can tolerate 5%, uh, not more, and so on and so on. At the end of this road lies the extreme possibility which should in no way be discarded, that of a historic pact between Zionists and Muslim fundamentalists. But what if we are entering a new era where this new reasoning based on ethnic identities will universally impose, uh, impose itself? Recent outbursts of homophobia in East European post-communist countries should give us a pause to think. In early 2011, there was a gay parade in Istanbul where thousands paraded in peace, tried to do something similar in ex-Yugoslavia. Gay parades were, were regularly interrupted by violent mob, mob in a lynching mood. Now it is crucial for me to locate anti-Semitism into this series as one of the elements alongside other forms of racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on. In order to ground its Zionist politics, I think, the State of Israel is here making a catastrophic mistake. It decided to downplay the so-called old, traditional European anti-Semitism, focusing instead on the new, allegedly progressive anti-Semitism, masked, so they say, as the critique of the Zionist politics of the State of Israel. Along these lines, Bernard-André Lévy recently claimed that the anti-Semitism of the 20th, 21st century will be progressive or there will be none. Brought to the end, this thesis compels us to turn around the old Marxist interpretation of anti-Semitism as a mystified anti-capitalism. Instead of blaming the capitalist system, we focus on the corruptive influence of Jews. For André Lévy and his partisans, it is today's anti-capitalism which is a disguised form of anti-Semitism. He explicitly stated this in an interview. Beneath every radical anti-capitalism today, look for anti-Semitism. Un this unspoken, but no less efficient prohibition of attacking the old anti-Semitism is taking place at the very moment when the old anti-Semitism is returning all around Europe, from post-communist countries to Scandinavia. We can observe a similar alliance in the United States. How can the U.S. Christian fundamentalists, who are, as it were, by nature anti-Semitic, now passionately support the Zionist policy of the State of Israel? Uh, Israel is playing here a dangerous game. Fox News, the main U.S. voice of the radical right, a staunch supporter of the Israeli expansion, recently had to demote Glenn Beck, who, as you know, were, whose comments, as you know, were getting openly anti-Semitic. And this, I think, is a very dark tendency. Namely, 
The standard Zionist argument against the critics of the polities of the state of Israel is that, of course, like every other state, the state of Israel should be judged and eventually criticized, but, so they claim, the critics of Israel often misuse the critique of Israeli policy for anti-Semitic purposes. When the unconditional Christian fundamentalist supporters of the Israeli politics reject leftist critique of Israeli politics, is their implicit line of argumentation not best rendered by a wonderful cartoon published in July 2008 in the Viennese Austrian daily newspaper Die Presse? It's a wonderful caricature showing two stocky, Nazi-looking Austrians, one of them holding in his hands a newspaper and commenting to his friend. Here you can see again how a totally justified anti-Semitism is being misused for a cheap critique of the State of Israel. These are today's allies of the State of Israel. Jewish critics of the State of Israel are regularly dismissed as self-hating Jews. However, I think, the true self-hating Jews, that is to say, those who secretly hate the true greatness of the Jewish nation, are precisely the Zionists making a pact, an implicit pact with Western conservative anti-Semites. How did we end up in such a weird situation? Let me begin with a wonderfully dialectical joke from one of the absolute masterpieces of Jewish Hollywood, what conservatives, another field of conservative anti-Semitism, attacking Hollywood as hedonist, decadent, in short, as Jewish. In Ernst Lubitsch's Ninochka, a wonderful detail, maybe you remember it. The hero visits a cafeteria and orders coffee without cream. The waiter replies, sorry, but we have run out of cream. Can I bring you coffee without milk? Because we have only milk. So the customer gets coffee alone. But this coffee is accompanied by a different negation. Coffee without cream is not the same thing as coffee without milk. You will see why this logic is important for how ideology functions today. But before going on, let me give you another example from another popular film, also about coffee, the English working-class melodrama Brust Off. There, the hero accompanies home a young, pretty girl, and, of course, there is erotic tension between the two of them, so at the entrance to her flat, she tells him, would you like to come in for a coffee? He answers, I would love to, but there is a problem. I don't drink coffee. She retorts with a smile, no problem, I don't have any. The immense erotic power of her reply resides in how, through a double negation, she pronounces an embarrassingly direct sexual invitation without even making sex. She invites him for a coffee, then she says, it doesn't matter if you don't drink coffee, I don't have it, which means sex, directly. <laughs> uh, now, why lose time with such stupid jokes? Because, again, they allow us to grasp at its purest how ideology functions today in our allegedly post-ideological times. To detect the so-called ideological distortions, you should note not only what is said, but the complex interplay between what is said and what is not said. 
which unsaid is implied in what is said. We often get coffee without milk, while the claim is we are getting coffee without cream. How can this happen? Already in Eastern Europe, there was a political equivalent of this coffee joke from Ninochka. A friend told me that in communist era in Poland, when things were often lacking in stores, there is a joke where a customer enters a store and asks, you probably didn't yet get butter, you don't have butter, or do you? And uh, the answer is, sorry, but we are the store which doesn't have toilet paper. The store which doesn't have butter is the one uh, across the street. One can imagine uh, also a brushed off dialogue between the US and Europe in late 2002 when the invasion of Iraq was being prepared. Rumsfeld says to his European colleagues, would you care to join us in the attack on Iraq to find the weapons of mass destruction? Europeans replied, but we have no facilities to search for the weapons of mass destruction. The Rumsfeld answer was basically, no problem, there are no weapons of mass destruction in, in, in Iraq. Let's just attack it, you know. Uh, uh, the same goes for, in Europe, the disappointment after 1990. As the name of the Polish movement, Solidarność, dissident movement says, the protesters against communist rule wanted freedom and democracy without ruthless capitalist lack of solidarity. What they got was exactly freedom and democracy without solidarity. So again, they got what they wanted, but with the wrong absent element, with the wrong without. And to bring this logic to the end, the most interesting point is when we get a thing, as it were, without itself. I think this is the crux of the healthcare debate, which is now again actual in the United States. Uh, Republicans, to simplify the line of argumentation, of course, Republicans are claiming that state regulation, universal uh, uh, health uh, care and so on, deprive you of the freedom of choice. Our answer should be, this is absolutely a false, misleading opposition. There, the freedom of choice that they are offering is precisely a freedom of choice without the social substance which makes freedom of choice meaningful. It's precisely a freedom of choice without de facto, without uh, freedom of choice. Now, with this conceptual apparatus, we can approach the key question. What is the ongoing crisis about? The first thing to discard, it's not about reckless spending, greed, ineffectual bank regulations, and so on and so on. For example, in Europe, it's now fashionable, as you know, to target Greece, all those lazy Greeks spending European money, and so on and so on. But I think the fact is much more crucial and tragic. Greece is not an exception. It is simply one of the main testing grounds to impose a new socio-economic model with universal claim. The depoliticized technocratic model where bankers and other experts are allowed to squash democracy. Why is this happening now? An economic cycle, I think, is coming to an end. 
a cycle which began in the early 1970s, uh, the time when, according to a Greek economist uh, Vakoufakis, the so-called global minotaur, the Greek monster, was born. The monstrous engine that was running the world economy from the early 1980s to 2008. So, Yanis Varoufakis claims that the late 60s and the early 70s were not just the time of oil crisis and stagflation. Nixon's decision to abandon the gold standard for the US dollar was the sign of a much more radical shift in the basic functioning of the capitalist system. By the end of the 60s, the US economy was no longer able to continue the recycling of its surpluses to Europe and Asia. Its surpluses has turned into deficits. In 1971, US government responded to this decline with an audacious strategic move. Instead of tackling the nation's exploding deficit, it decided to do the opposite, to boost the deficit. And who would pay for it? The rest of the world. How? By means of a permanent transfer of capital that rushed ceaselessly across the two great oceans to finance America's uh, deficits. Although Emmanuel Todd's vision of today's global order, described in his book After the Empire, is one-sided, I think it has a moment of truth. The U.S. are an empire in decline. Its growing negative trade balance demonstrates that the U.S. is a non-productive predator. It has to suck up $1 billion daily influx from other nations to buy for its consumption, and is as such the universal Keynesian consumer that keeps the world economy running. This influx, which is effectively like the money paid to Rome in antiquity or the gifts sacrificed to Minotaur by ancient Greeks, relies on a complex economic mechanism. United States are trusted as the safe and stable center so that all others, from oil-producing Arab countries to Western Europe, Japan, and now China, invest their surplus profit into the United States. Since this trust is primarily ideological and military, not economic, the problem for the United States is how to justify its imperial role. It needs a permanent state of war, so the United States had to invent the war on terror, offering itself as the universal protector of all other normal, not rogue states. This era, I claim, is now breaking up. This strange instability where the whole world, in a way, financed the, financed, uh, the United States. And I claim that the Occupy Wall Street movement was a reaction to this. I don't exaggerate its importance. Especially, I don't attribute to them a knowledge which they obviously don't possess. For me, the key message of Occupy Wall Street or wherever around the world is a double message. A, this is no longer just a one-issue movement, you know, like uh, uh, protesting racism, a certain war, and so on. 
It's a movement which targets a kind of a construction flaw in the system as such, in global capitalist system as such, and point to the, another implication of Occupy Wall Street is that the existing democratic institutional order is not strong enough to resolve this problem. They don't have positive answers how to do it. I don't have them. But this insight, I claim, is true. Let me provide you a brief analysis of a text attacking Occupy Wall Street so that you will see how obvious this is even to the enemies of Occupy Wall Street. I'm referring to a quite amusing text by Anne Applebaum, which was first published half a year ago as a comment in Washington Post, and her thesis is that protests around the world, these Occupy protests are, I quote, similar in their lack of focus, in their confused nature, and above all, in their refusal to engage with existing democratic institutions. In New York, marchers chanted, this is what democracy looks like, but actually, this isn't what democracy looks like. Democracy looks a lot more boring. Democracy requires institutions, elections, political parties, and so on and so on. But then she goes on. Yet, in one sense, the international Occupy movement's failure to produce sound legislative proposals is understandable. Both the sources of the global economic crisis and the solutions to it lie, by definition, outside the competence of local or national politicians. The emergence of an international protest movement without a coherent program is therefore not an accident. It reflects a deeper crisis, one without an obvious solution. Democracy is based on the rule of law. Democracy works only within distinct borders and among people who feel themselves to be part of the same nation. A global community cannot be a national democracy, and the national democracy cannot command the allegiance of a billion-dollar global hedge fund. Then she goes on. This is all a quote. Although I still believe in globalization's economic and spiritual benefits, globalization has clearly begun to undermine the legitimacy of Western democracies. Global activists of the Occupy movement, if they are not careful, will accelerate this decline. Protesters in London shout, we need to have a process. Well, they already have a process. It's called the British political system. If, and if they don't figure out how to use it, they'll simply weaken it further. End of quote. My comment. Did you notice the shocking part, a weird gap in Applebaum's uh, argumentation towards the end of this quote? After conceding that the undeserved economic consequences of global capitalist finances are, due to their international character, out of control of democratic mechanisms, she draws the necessary conclusion, which is precisely the basic insight of Occupy movements, that globalization undermines the legitimacy of our democracies. So far, okay, we can say. This is precisely what the protesters were drawing attention to. But instead of drawing the only logical 
conclusion from this, that we should start thinking about how to expand democracy beyond its existing institutional forum, which obviously leaves out, is not able to cope with destructive consequences of our economic system. Instead of this, she performs a weird turnaround and she shifts the blame on protesters themselves who precisely raised these questions. That is to say, according to Applebaum, since global economies outside the scope of democratic politics, we should nonetheless engage in existing political system, which again, according to her own account, cannot do the job. You notice this strange gap. First, she says, I understand protesters, they can't give any problem and our political system cannot cope with the crisis, with the crisis which undermines our democracy. But at the end, my God, all she can offer is the existing democracy itself. Here, at least I claim protesters, even if they did not have any positive proposals, saw much more than her. They don't offer any easy answer. I'm fully aware that their answer is basically, ironically, that of a political figure which also was from Wall Street, uh, Herman Melville's Bartleby. It's more, I would prefer not to. No positive program. Maybe this is how we should begin, although there is a long road ahead. Soon we will have to ask for at least elements of a positive program. Why? Reacting to the protests in Paris in 1968, Jacques Lacan said, quote, what you aspire to as revolutionaries is a new master. You will get one, end of quote. Okay, I think this diagnostic and prognostic should be rejected. It's too cheap. But it contains a grain of truth. I claim that this is a problem with today's protests, at least in Europe, in Spain, in Dignados, up to a point even in Greece. Whenever I meet with protesters, I insist on a stupid, naive question. What do you want? And do you, like, what do you want? A little bit more regulation, higher ethical standards, better capitalism, return to social democracy, or some neo-Marxist revolution. I am regularly treated as if I am raising some prohibited obscene question, like, how can you be doing this? It's not the time to ask these questions, and so on, and so on. I think, I think it is. Much of these protests, <coughs> which pose demands, we want a just life, we want a life where money serves people, people don't serve money, and so on, are effectively a call for a new master, a typical hysterical gesture calling for a new master, and we are already getting the glimpse of this new master in Greece and Italy. As if ironically answering the lack of expert programs of the protesters, the trend is now to replace politicians in the government with a neutral government of depoliticized technocrats. And I claim that it's no longer a joke. Democracy is gradually, although in a democratic way, gradually half suspended. You remember that moment which was terrifying for me when Greece was in deep crisis, the last uh, PASOK Prime Minister Papandreou 
proposed a referendum, and the entire Europe was in shock. How can the referendum has nothing to do here? Literally, it was a pressure to say, no, this is a problem for experts. Don't, don't, mess, with, uh, don't mess with democracy here. Incidentally, exactly the same thing that happened already in the United States in 2008. Do you remember? First, Bush government, still George Bush, presented to the Congress this proposal for $750 billion. At that point, it was a great sum. Today, it's peanuts. And remember, the Congress voted two-thirds against first. Then, the entire political elite, Bush, McCain, Obama, went there and in a panic convinced them what was their basic message. It was, listen, we need this money now. There is no time for democratic bullshit, blah, blah, blah. And a week later, there was a new vote, two-thirds, four. So this is, for me, de facto ongoing suspension of democracy. What I'm claiming is, again, there are no easy solutions. The lesson of Occupy Wall Street, for me, is just we have to start thinking. Something is happening. There are great dangers on the horizon. Again, first, we see clearly the limits of the system as such, and B, we see, my God, an Applebaum, liberal conservative admits it. We see how the existing institutional system cannot cope with it. So, Allow me just a short conclusion in two parts. First, what can we do here? What can we do? I would like to begin with a quite shocking example, maybe shocking for you. Uh, I would like to show you the final scene, final four minutes of the very final of the last year of The Wire, the TV series, which is the moment of failure, like, you know, McNulty, who is fired, has to withdraw, just uh, goes to a bridge overlooking the the, uh, Baltimore Harbor. And what I want to draw your attention to is this ambiguity of wisdom. That is to say, what we get here is a kind of concluding wisdom. The immediate reading of this scene would have been something like, like, you know, it's all part of the same cycle. We were protesting. We honest policemen were trying to do whatever we can do, but it was all co-opted by the system. So it is something like, now I'm consciously evil, uh, it's the, the wire version of what in a movie that I really hate, uh, The Lion King, is called, you remember, The Cycle of Life. You know, when the small lion asks the father, but why are we killing, eating uh, zebras? The father starts to think something like, you know, yes, we are eating zebras, but then we die, we turn to, we turn to manure, we feed grass, and grass is eaten by zebras, and so it's all one big uh, cycle of life. I have a problem with this type of wisdom. Because, you know, like, let me be now truly evil. Imagine an added scene to Roberto Benigni's Life is Beautiful, where the wife, uh, sorry, where the son asks the father the same question. 
But why are the Nazis screwing us, killing us? And Roberto Benigni to, starts to think, it's all one big cycle of life, you know, like the Nazis are killing us, but the Nazis will turn into dust, uh, into manure, the Nazis will feed the... Okay, they answer, we will beat them, the Nazis, okay. The Nazis uh, uh, will be manure for grass, Cows will eat the grass, we will slaughter the grass and eat the steaks, and then Nazis will eat us again, so it's all one big cycle of life. Well, in general, this is true. Although, you know, the true revolution is not to resist as part of this cycle of life. The true revolution is precisely the change in this very cycle of life. I mean, I hope that that the only possible cycle of life is not the one where millions of Jews get, get killed or where, whatever you want, where millions die in Africa, where millions die in Gulag, and so on and so on. So, uh, please, let's have this clip, and then I will add some concluding uh, thoughts and add another ultra-optimistic for me clip. With it, I will finish. Temptation. First case up, and I have to refuse my hands are so 
Jackson. You gotta keep the devil way down in the hole. And I claim, at least for me, it's deeply ambiguous. The predominant reading, even one at which uh, uh, the authors uh, David Simon himself hints at, is kind of a, what I call in more philosophical terms, the resigned withdrawal or surrender to the position of the absolute. Like, we are fighting our fights. But again, it's the Lion King reading. But you know, it's all part of a cycle of life. We resist, maybe we succeed, but criminal, criminal uh, crime, crime reorganizes itself. We cannot even be sure if in our success against mid-level criminals we don't enable the crime gangs to become more efficient, every resistance is part of the game, and so on and so on. So the usual reading would be this resigned wisdom. We may try honestly fight crime, but it's just part of an internal cycle, and so on and so on. It almost naturalizes the cycle, this one. But I claim this is not a necessary reading. This is for me precisely the the problem. I'm well aware the extent to which false resistance can, is, even, is part of the system. This is the obsession of my work, how apparent transgressions not only are compatible with the system, but allow the system to reproduce 
itself. So we should go to the end here in this reading. Not only is all the activity of this group of honest policemen meeting in, this, in the dilapidated basement in the wire, not only is it is not a threat to the system, but paradoxically it enables the system with drug dealers and so on to, to function in a smooth way. I mean, I can give you here dozens of examples of this mixture. Michel Foucault uh, theorized it of how resistance is part of the law, law and its, its transgression imply each other. For example, I remember, this is the pure example, my eternal trauma when I was serving in mid-70s Yugoslav People's Army. We had political education, and one day, the first hour in the morning was a class on international war rules. And the officer was explaining to us this Geneva Convention, whatever, which you probably know this, it prohibits shooting a parachuter, the enemy dropping, before he hits the ground. This is the international rule. Okay, in a kind of a poetic justice, the second, the next hour of morning education was practicing targeting the gun. And yes, the topic of that day was how to hit a parachuter in the air. You know, how you have to, to, to take into account uh, the direction of the wind. The, you have to estimate how to, to, uh, to of course, to, to target to a little bit, to aim a little bit lower to hit him. And then I did something so naive and stupid that only an intellectual can do it. I asked the officer, like, but isn't this in contradiction with, with what you were telling me an hour ago, us? And he, in a fully justified way, he looked at me and said, I thought you were an intellectual. How could you be so utterly stupid? <laughs> and, but similarly, even more, for example, socialist systems, communists, whatever you call them, they fought all the time black market. But without black market, it's absolutely clear they wouldn't have survived. For example, you know that in Brezhnev era, the last 10, 15 years of Soviet Union, up to 30, 40 percent of food, especially uh, uh, vegetables, meat, uh, fruit, came from the black market. So they fought it, but it was absolutely, it was absolutely necessary for the survival. Okay, this is the usual transgression, police and drug dealers. The problem is, what about, again, this, because for me, the wire is focused precisely on this ethical problem. What can we do in such a corrupted situation? You have all the options from that wonderful figure of Omar to McNulty, all the figures. Uh, 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 what to do? But should we simply accept that this also, these honest protesters who try to repair the system are part that all, they are all part of the game? Yes and no. I will try to conclude to Elaborate this with a weird reference. <laughs> now comes the surprise. <laughs> what the left can learn from the greatest one, from Ayn Rand. <laughs> the true conflict in the universe of Ayn Rand novels is not between the so-called prime movers and the crowd of second-handers who are parasitic on the prime movers' productive genius. It's something quite different if you take that masterpiece that with all my goodwill I wasn't able to read to the end, uh, Atlas Schracht, 
the true conflict is between John Galt, whatever, and Dagny the heroine. Why? It's between, it's, the true conflict runs within the prime movers, the creative geniuses. It resides in the tension between, sexualized tension, between the prime mover, the guy, John Galt, and his hystericized partner, the potential prime mover who remains caught in the deadly self-destructive dialectic. When in Atlas Shrugged, uh, one of the prime movers, I'm not sure it's John Gold, tells Dagny, the heroine, who unconditionally wants to pursue her work and keep the transcontinental railroad company running, that she is told that the prime mover's true enemy is not the crowd of, of, inner, of these inert second-handers, but herself. She is the enemy. I think this is to be taken literally. Dagny, the heroine, becomes aware of it. When prime movers start to disappear from public productive life, she suspects a dark conspiracy. The a conspiracy who forces them to withdraw and thus gradually bring the entire social life to a standstill. Why? What's the point? Uh, Second-handers possess no consistency of their own. The key to solution is not to break them, but to break the chain which forces the creative prime movers to work for them. You know, her idea is that in the corrupted welfare state system that Ayn Rand is describing, that, again, the problem is not this Roosevelt-Obama bureaucracy, whatever. The problem are the creative people who still worry how to make the system work, who fight the system within the system. No, we should make the trailer run. No, we should. These people are the true enemies. And the idea is they should stop worrying other, peop other people's worries. They should withdraw, let the system reach its low point, and only in this way you can bring about radical change. Now, here I'm totally misusing aim rent for radical leftist purposes. <laughs> Maybe this is what we if still want to be. If we still want to be, I certainly do want to be some kind of a radical left. Maybe this is what we at some level should learn. Don't, don't be like Dagny and so on, this creative people who, accept, who try to desperately to save the system and even if they appear to resist it, are effectively prolonging its life, making it run. Like in Europe now, what will happen with Euro? What will happen with financial crisis and so on and so on? Of course, to avoid a misunderstanding, I'm not saying if millions starve, we do nothing. But this is not what we worry today. What we worry about today are problems like financial break, breakdown. I'm more and more tempted to say maybe we should allow it to happen. Don't worry other, other people's worries. Don't be in this sense a resistant whose desperate ethic endeavor makes the system work. Withdraw, allow the system to allow the system to in a way allow the system to self-destroy itself. Which is why coming back to this final reflection. I think that every 
true social change has to go through this moment. Only after going through this moment, when you see how your activity to resist the system, far from really damaging it, makes it run, only going through the system, you can envisage the real change. There is no real change without this, as it were, passage through the point of the absolute, where, again, you see how the standard resistance for, in, makes the system run. This is, for me, what would be today the standard resistance? The moralizing critique, you know, nationalize the banks or punish the financial speculators and so on and so on. My God, I wanted to write seriously a defense of Bernard Madoff. No, no, he's scum and so on. But don't blame him. Blame the system which enabled him to, did, to do what he did. He's not the problem. Don't, I, I claim that the first thing to do today is to totally prohibit this moralistic critique, ooh, greed, financial speculations, and so on and so on. The problem is not this. The problem is why the system opened up the space for such financial speculations. And I think it's a deep structural necessity. It has nothing to do with bankers, greed, and so on and so on. So now, to conclude, I would like to go a step further and show you, I'm not laughing here, please believe me, show you the final five minutes of a film which is, I'm not making a bad taste joke here, which is deeply optimistic for me. It's uh, the last four or five minutes of Lars von Trier's Melancholia, The End of the World. I really think that the, you know, we should abandon that leftist progressism, ooh, people will be happy at the end, and so on, and so on. To really fight for justice or whatever, you have to go through this point that you will see here, accept the ultimate vanity, we will appear only if you are at peace with this position embodied here in the heroine played by Kirsten Dunst, this acceptance of catastrophe. Only if you go through this zero point, you can fight from freedom, all that, all that, and so on. I was always opposed to this idea that being progressive, radical, politically, involves some kind of stupid optimism. Humanity will win or whatever. We will live eternally. No. The, the, this not only does not immobilize you, it gives you, as it were, the necessary distance to engage. This position that you will see at the end, it's not, oh, let's sit down, everything is over. No, it it's, creates the only possible space for a radical position, which is why time is running and don't have time. If I were to have time, I would oppose this film to Terence Malik's The Tree of Life, which is, I think, precisely the wrong spiritualist film. Totally, totally false position there. Here we have uh, an, uh, the reason I like uh, Melancholia is that, did you notice how it turns around the standard asteroid hits the earth story, which is that 
this mega catastrophe is simply a metaphor for something going wrong with the love couple. You know, like then, when the couple is reconciled, uh, the asteroid disappears or whatever, and so on and so on. Here, the melancholia, the asteroid, is definitely not just a metaphor of what doesn't function with the couple. No, the earth really disappears, and so on and so on. And what I like so much in the film is that it fully engages in this wonderfully shot, you will not see all, of course, this imagining in a very minimalist way how entire reality around us is disintegrating, how just before, you will not see this, the final events, all of a sudden, in an almost David Lynch moment, worms, all the creatures from the earth, start to crawl up, as if, you know, in the last moments, the normal frame of nature is uh, falling apart, and so on and so on. This would be the Hegelian moment of radical negativity, and so on. We have to confront it. We have to accept that we are free only against this background. So I really mean it. I'm not kidding here. We have to adopt her position. It's absolutely the price to really fight even for everyday freedoms. Please, let's do it.
again, I'm not kidding. This is for me, if not happiness, the condition of happiness. If you are not ready to go through this zero point, then you live a false life. Now we are from politics to more metaphysics theology. So I would like now to invite my good friend with whom I co-wrote the book, a Croat Protestant theologist, that's important. In our two respect, uh, respective countries, like Protestants are not exactly nationally Tiny. constitutive, no? Tiny minority. The, yeah, so uh, I was glad to do a book with him together, so to do nonetheless the commercial introduction. I didn't talk about this in my talk, but this is, you can get this talk either without coffee or without milk. Sorry, without cream or without milk. Without cream is the book that we co-published. My, my talk was without these dialogues, God in Pain. And without milk would have been my mega book, which I don't yet have it, but I was told you can buy it here, uh, Less Than Nothing on Hegel. And as a Stalinist, I can tell you it has 1,038 pages printed. So as a Stalinist, I can say since my five-year plan was 1,000. I went over the plan for 3.8%, so I hope I will get the medal of model socialist worker. So I'm glad to have him here for 10 minutes, okay. yeah, yeah, because I am allowed to go over a little bit. You know, you know this is life, you know. Yeah, know. As in The Lion King, they will say some people circle eat zebra, life. circle of life, yeah. And then we will play democracy a little yeah, bit, okay. Q&A, please. Thank you very much. With that kind of introduction, our friend, you don't need enemy, right? So I will be very short, and I just want to share some of the insights about our co-work. And because I'm a priest and theologian, and, and Slavo is a psychoanalysis and, and philosopher, it's a very... But you are a real priest. Yeah, I'm a real one. A true psychoanalyst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine... It's the same uh, with me as a priest, you know. So, um, a friend of mine said after he read the book, he says this is a very dangerous book because it can turn atheist into believer and believer into atheist. I think, well, that's exactly what we in, in, intend. Uh, uh, to feel pain, it's there's nothing wrong with feel pain because if you cannot feel pain, you, can, you cannot feel anything else. I think that's the, one of the ideas lurking uh, in that book. But the whole idea is, it, this is a book about tools. Um, uh, Jules Deleuze said that uh, capitalism uh, is a enslavement of desire. And as Slavoj said here, with the young people who are protesting all over the Europe, you know, and if you ask them a question like, what do you really want? You know, what, what do you really desire? They will be almost provoked by that. But I think it's, um, the important thing is the how, to, how to shape our desires and, and what to do with our desires. And I think to, to, have a, to, to give answer, it's, it's a small, I just want to remind you on small uh, uh, essay written by Walter Benjamin in the early 20s. He wrote essays called Capitalism as Religion. And it's very prophetic, very, very profound text. And in that text, you know, the conclusion is this. If capitalism is religion, then only religion can criticize capitalism. And uh, what kind of a religion? 
And of course, we think that it's Christianity. And to do that, we need to rethink our Christian tradition and Christian faith. And it's not like, like in Europe now you have left and you have right. And, you know, left, left wingers were always like creative, imaginative. Uh, they were spontaneous. They understand things. They have a vision. And the right wing people, they stick to tradition, rule, law. But it's, it's just inversion, you know. We have leftists without ideas, without imagination, without spontaneity. And then we have the right, right wingers who are, you know, they don't obey tradition, they don't follow the laws, they don't pay the taxes, they are corrupted. And all of a sudden we have total mess. So I think it's very important to, to have certain tools to think what was not thinkable before. And to do that, uh, the whole uh, procedure, how we think about uh, things in, in, in our book, is to make step back, you know, make the distance. And you know, out of modernity, which is uh, late modernity, which is equal as, as capitalism, it's important just to make some methodological procedure and, and step back into pre-modernity and, and use texts like Bible or Quran or Augustine and Dante and just rethink our desires through, through those old ancient texts so that we can make two steps in front and see what's going on here. So I think uh, Augustine done that in in pretty interesting way and, and he just says that, you know, what we really need is apocalyptic collective, which was, of course, Christianity is an apocalyptic religion, and Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. And we have apocalyptic collective of uh, radically equal people. So we need to rethink uh, our desires and re- reshape them through virtues. And, of course, Augustine and, and of course, New Testament said, you know, we need faith, love, uh, uh, hope, to do that, but also to think virtues, we also need to accept classical virtues like courage, like uh, prudence, temperance, uh, and uh, um, and to do. Uh, if you have uh, rethink these virtues, then you can make two steps in front, and you can come to equality and brotherhood and uh, uh, egality and everything. What was the moment of? Uh, uh, of enlightenment politics and uh, and uh, the whole enlightenment movement, and for me, and I, I will just uh, kind of provoke you here. For me, it was very one of the best definition of politics was uh, it, it was defined by uh, Anton Noan uh, Sanjist uh, when he said that if you don't want, you know, he 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 was called Archangel of Terror, and he was there with Robespierre and Marat and he was killed when he was 24. So he, did, he, did, he defined politics like, if you don't want terror or, if, or virtue, you, you, you want corruption. And I think that's, that's where we are now, today. You know, like to do, you know, who is doing politics through terror? Virtue is difficult and it's very unpredictable and how, how, to, how to live in virtue as a community, this is very difficult. Then what we are left with, uh, with the corruption. I think our book, the whole idea behind the book is, you know, to provide certain tools for thinking, pre-modern tools for contemporary situation, how to think something what was not thinkable before. So thank you very much for your time and for your patience. So if you have some questions, I will be happy to answer.
I promise that next time, I hope this is not our last time together. Okay, of course. That I will be in a more egalitarian mood, like. No problem. You get the same amount of time, you know. No, no problem with that. We already have this discussion there in Eastern Europe, and you know, like we play this. Uh... Yeah, but we are now in a more primitive country, you know. It okay, may be clear right. for us in Eastern Europe, but yeah, still but, it's, uh... but you know, in Eastern Europe, like uh, like in, in European family, Eastern Europeans are treated as as drunk uncle. You know, in family reunion, you always have drunk uncle who know all of those dirty jokes yeah. and, and he know all of the stories behind people are embarrassing. So we have this discussion and like when Slavo used this uh, metaphor that Jesus is uh, Marx and then Paul is the Lenin and I, and I wrote something about Mark, Gospel of Mark and I said well he's a Trotsky. You know, I tried to kind of convince people well, he, Mark is like Trotsky and Slavo asked a question like but who is Stalin? And I said well Judas I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> Here maybe we can have a debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Okay. Okay. So let's now, my God, it's so dark. Can you maybe put the light, someone on? Because, and please, I was told, uh, uh, Charles, you will help us if there will be an ideological confusion, but there is a microphone here. Please simply step forward and ask the question. Please. It would be better even for you if I think them to be seen. Is it possible to turn on the light, please, a little bit more? Yes. Yes. Just the usual bullshit, you know, like yeah, ask right. the question, don't give a talk. We were here justified to bore people, not you. And yeah, please. Yeah. And specify to whom the question is addressed if it's not self-evident. No. Please. I, I wanted Sorry. to respond to your um your statement that democracy is at an end and that we're that in Greece the existing institutional democracy okay I was very clear here all right not democracy as such I see okay and they're using these technocrats to uh, to govern Greece because their democracy was impossible just as ours has broken down because I think the right has refused to budge but the uh, the masters are these these globalized of course outside of democracy uh, banks and I think the Occupy Wall Street is trying to address them with, with a popular movement. Is, isn't there a tension between, between these two entities, the, the large impersonal <laughs> globalized banks and the, and the democratic surge of Occupy Wall Street? I see your point, but again, I'm here very skeptical in the sense that I think that the first duty of a leftist today is to be ruthlessly critical also towards the left itself. Yes, I agree with you in general. But what does this concretely mean? Ask the Occupy people, okay, what do you want to do with the banks? You get either purely moralistic answers, like the one I already mentioned, uh, money should serve people, not people serve money. Well, my cynical answer is Hitler would fully agree with it, because he would add money which is not controlled by the people, is controlled by the Jews, and there we are, and so on. No? So my first move is don't focus excessively on I'm sick and tired of this blaming the financial capital. The problem is how did because of what tendencies in the global movement did financial capital in the last 20, 30 years start to play this role? Then how to do it, how to fight it, and so on and so on. I'm just saying there are serious problems here. And let me go even provoke you more. Another Ayn Rand insight. You know, I mean, she's ridiculous. I'm not crazy. But, uh, you know, she did hit something 
on its head when she claimed in this ridiculous, pathetic way that that without money there is no freedom because only on the like I have something that you want, you have something that I want. Only through money and free exchange can each get what he wants without domination, servitude, and so on. Of course, I don't agree that this is the ultimate horizon. But it is true that it's a mega problem. Wasn't the lesson of totalitarian experiences of the 20th century that trying to move over market and money effectively did bring back direct relations of servitude and domination? So for me, it's a very serious problem. Is it how to reorganize society where market exchange will not be the determining factor without regressing to some new form of direct servitude domination relations? I mean, you know, I, of course, now you can, not you personally, people can tell me the usual bullshit, people's direct democracy, self-organization, whatever, whatever. Well, let me tell you, I'm skeptical about this, you know. Sorry? The right has, uh, since, since uh, Bush won, since Reagan, mm -hmm. Bush won, and Clinton, have, have deregulated um, the financial markets. And as William Black Up to a point, pointed you know, out, I corruption your... filled in yeah. the spaces. I agree, but I don't think it's as simple as that. You know, when we talk so much about deregulation, are we aware that today's capitalism is not really deregulated? Certain things are deregulated, other things are probably more regulated than ever. I don't think there ever was in the history of humanity a state more controlling, intervening even in, in economy than the United States. You are not a liberal country. I'm talking now in economic sense. The state intervenes through political measure, economic support and so on. Everyone already regulates, so you should at least ask what kind of regulation. So, you know, and again, what limit to regulation? Where do you stop? Do you just think, okay, this would be a social democratic solution? And I respect it up to a certain point. I'm well aware of the problems. I'm not an idiot who claims, oh, we need a new proletarian revolution. Ha ha, who will do it? How? But what I'm saying is, is this enough just by better laws, better regulation, or is something more needed? Maybe a little bit more radical. And... I am aware of the problem. How to do it without new total control, new forms of domination? No, I'm modest here. I don't have easy solutions. I'm just saying time to start to think. Um, I want to ask about, don't you think it's too easy and simplistic what Frontier do because it's functioning exactly as religious do, like on the background of apocalyptic things yeah. you can, ideology can function, while really what you miss in death drive immediately can create the pleasure principle and the Jewish son. So it's a very easy trick that religion uses all the time by keeping apocalyptic in order for us to function. While really the real situation that it's in the title, melancholy, that's from that position that there is no end and there is no solution, that's really the position that we should act as a pessimistic, active, political people. That it's much harder position, but without the Jewish son of the end, I agree here basically with you, but again, I think it's more complex. Because first, I don't think that what we have here is some fundamental religious 
experience, but it's the experience of the real absolute end. And religion precisely never accepts it. Although it's again more tricky, let me share. I talk as if this night I flew in from there, as if I'm in California. There they talk like this. Let me share an experience with you. Uh, uh, did you see the shitty movie I did? And I enjoyed only one line. Otherwise, it's shitty. Uh, the Wrath of Titans. You know, they Rafe finds Liam Neeson. There is one line which is nice there. When Rafe finds Hades, addresses Zeus, he tells him something which, in a way, turns around Heidegger. You know, Heidegger's idea of uh, God are immortals, we humans are mortals. What he says there, uh, Hades, is that when a man dies, he somehow survives in memory, descendants, and so on and so on. So men are immortal through humanity and so on. But when a god dies, he really dies. Only gods are, if they die, really real mortals. So in this sense, maybe there is a theological dimension, theological dimension here. And I see your point about, I've written about it also, about death drive, immortality, and so on and so on. Uh, I just uh, think, but I don't have time to develop it now, that uh, melancholy is maybe not the right name here. I don't think the right name of this planet is uh, melancholy. I don't like melancholy. I don't buy this idea, which was very fashionable in some circles at least 20 years ago, uh, good melancholy versus bad morning. You know, like morning is a compromise. You basically accept the loss by symbolizing it and you... Like, we bury you, fuck off, we move on. While a melancholic remains stuck on the lost object. No, I think, as I often developed following uh, Agamben, Freud already, and so on, that, uh, no, melancholia is not fidelity to the lost object. Melancholia is, melancholy is, on the opposite, to treat as lost an object which is still here. Freud uses a wonderful expression in his Trauer und Melancholie where he says Melan melancholy is a preemptive morning. You know, melancholy is not when I lose my lover, but if she or he or it adopts, so that you will not me accuse me of speciesism, whatever, no? My lover is still here. The shadow of death of partition is already here. So, again, yes, you... Uh, uh, raised difficult questions which I prefer to avoid today. That's very much. Please. If I talk is... too much. I need the master to stop me. Uh, sorry. Well, this is rather intimidating. I'm, I'm just a high school teacher. Uh, my question... Uh, it's difficult. You deal with real people. It's much more difficult for you to bluff. So perhaps my answer to my question, perhaps my question is simple. I, I, it seems to be a simple proposition, uh, relatively uncontroversial, that uh, the true utopia is a sustainable capitalism. Yeah. I seem to understand yeah. that yeah. from your presentation. Yeah. And yet you speak of the old movement, the old communist movement, in terms that are uh, range from derisive to dismissive, and that's it. And so uh, uh, my question is, is there nothing we can learn from, from the victories of the workers in places like Cuba, the Soviet Union, 
China, and etc. Because our enemy, capital, you don't speak of the full power of the state. Our enemy is armed. Our enemy has armed forces, carries out genocide across the seas. And if we're talking about liberation, we're talking about a self-defense movement on the part of the working class to chase the imperialists from power. They have their fingers on the atomic triggers. What can we learn from the old revolutionary movements? Because I don't know if there's time to wait for um, 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 us to begin to think, as you, as you might suggest. I, so I, what, what can we take from the past okay. that is worth replicating, repeating, for the working class who defend itself against the onslaught of capital with some semblance of a uh, 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 pride in the history of the communist movement? That's my question. I, first, let me do a little bit of self-criticism, sincerely. Oh. I know that when I pronounced that formula, capit- uh, communism 20th century was a total failure, that I said something which is not precisely what I wanted to say. My point was not, no, all was horrible and so on and so on. I always draw this distinction which I think is crucial. And even those detractors who like to refer to Hannah Arendt, like, oh, they are just the same two forms of totalitarianism. I doubt if they read Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt makes it very clear that only Nazism is the true totalitarianism. She is much more differentiated towards even the Soviet communism. So, my God, I did bring together Lenin's text and so on. My difference is this one, that the defeat of communism in the 20th century is a genuine tragedy an authentic emancipatory potential, well, got into deep shit. But it is inherent, which is why, how I try to explain all the things which are radically different between fascism and communism. For example, and this is for me precisely the sign that communism is not just a 20th century communism, a simple bad, bad things from the beginning. You have all the time dissident tensions and so on and so on. The only dissident tension in fascism was when Hitler got rid in 34 of SA of the brutal ordinary tax to become somebody with pretending having enough dignity to rule and so on and so on. For example, already this, for for me, it's absolutely crucial. Fascist system was lacking this Imminent instability, which precisely demonstrates that there was another authentic emancipatory dimension in uh, in communist system. I made this clear also, for example, apropos apropos the Chinese Cultural Revolution and so on. The problem with me, nonetheless, here maybe we distinguish. We are distinct. Yes, I agree with you. All this, you know, the usual story. Uh, the uh, Attempts to do about, okay, the us- first the usual line, healthcare, education, but all other things. But nonetheless, I think we have to concede that communism, the way we know it in 20th century, did not really produce any, for me at least, viable, workable new form of social organization. I don't see this. Even when you mention Cuba, even today, Venezuela, and so on and so on. I don't think we have the formula there, unfortunately. I don't see any 
real roots. And also, this is why, again, I see the communist terror even. It's not simply, you know, bad people doing horrible things. It's something extremely tragic, full of inner tensions and so on. And, but nonetheless, with all, uh, with all good points here, there, no doubt also authentic dedication and so on. I just think that in not everything was wrong, but that, my God, in this fundamental way, it failed. It didn't provide. Arm struggle, yes or no? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. More than ever. <laughs> You're talking my language here. <laughs> okay, folks, we'll take two more questions. Thank you. Ah, you are the Stalinist here. Perfect. Okay, um, kind of building off that last point, I would maybe shift the emphasis to say that maybe what's best to learn from the failure of communism in the 20th century is the defeats of the left rather than its victories. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in that spirit with, the, uh, with the, the Melancholia film, I know that you don't like the, the title, but I wonder if you're calling for, you know, as Walter Benjamin put it and Jody Dean, mm-hmm. one of your exegetes, um, has put it, um, a sort of left melancholy, uh, a sort of recognition of its own loss of self in the present. And in that vein, maybe saying, you know, with Marx, as Marx once said, the working class is revolutionary or it is nothing. I think today we have to recognize that it is nothing. But at this point, I mean, it's still there, something with us, that sort of melancholic, like it's still lost. It must become everything. The reason that it is nothing now is because it's not revolutionary. And so the task would be perhaps a pessimism of the strong, as, as um, Nietzsche put it, as, like a critical, self, ruthlessly self-critical yeah. left. No, no, I simply, not to lose time, I agree with you. The only, thing I would, uh, uh, the only thing I would add is that maybe we have to keep, that would be my solution. Already in Marx, if you really read him closely, although he doesn't explicitly draw the distinction, it's nonetheless implicit, I claim, a distinction between working class, which is more a sociological positive category, people can be blah, blah, and proletarian position, which would be this type of position of void, null, uh, void, void as radical loss, but at the same time as a loss which gives you freedom to see through and so on. And we should, I think, in this sense, redefine proletariat and claim, like Fred Jensen has some nice suggestions in his new book on this, on the capital, the short one, how today unemployed, third world, and so on and so on. We should build a different chain of proletarian position, which no longer privileges the standard working class. Although, again, we should also be aware that standard working class did not disappear. It is even here, it is in China, it is wherever you want, no? But, again, uh, 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 I think, and maybe we agree on this formula, that uh, we have to, you know, it's this old paradox that was seen nicely in theological terms by Kierkegaard, that uh, the only way to become faithful to to remain faithful to Marx is to move further, to repeat, but repeat in the Kierkegaardian sense, which doesn't mean do the same, but repeat means bring out what 
the points of failure, what was potentials not yet clear in the first attempt. And this, I think, should absolutely be done. This is the task today. Otherwise, I'm really a pessimist here. You know what's my nightmare? Let me describe it to you in a comical way. That, that one of the results of Occupy Wall Street will be that guys who were there will meet 10 years from now in a cafeteria. Oh, my God, this was a nice time when we were there. So nice. We were all there crying together. And then the phone of one guy will ring. Sorry, I have to run to my bank, you know, to go and be. You know, that the same will happen as in France 68, where every respectful right-winger in France today will tell you, of course, in 68, I was at the barricades, you know, and so on and so on. This is what I mean when I say, told them at Zuccotti Park, don't fall in love with yourself. Sorry, I cannot tell you more now. I'd like to ask the question for both of you, and um, I'm looking for your viewpoints of monasteries as functioning communist utopias. Absolutely. No, sorry, if I can just do that, I leave you all the time. You know what is so important for me in Jacques Lacan? That for him, he's speaking about nuns. He's absolutely clear in rejecting this bullshit that being a priest or a nun, I mean, now I mean more in a, you Protestants, you yeah. do all dirty things like we, but yeah. those who don't engage in sex, no, and Lacan makes it clear that there is nothing pathological in it. We should absolutely not do, reject this pseudo-Freudian bullshit, you know. A normal woman or man has to make love, so if you withdraw to a convent, it must be something wrong, oppressed, and so on and so on. No, it can be absolutely an authentic position. Now you, please, more okay. serious answer. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, what I understand from your question is that, like, what is, like, politically mean or, or theologically in monasteries and how it compared that with utopias? Am I right? I purposely left the question open. Okay. Uh, because for me here is is important thing that, that there is uh, the, the whole monastic movement in the 3rd, 4th century, it was a very radical political movement and they start to criticize imperial par- power of the church because in Constantine time, church, you know, church became uh, a ministry of empire and the bishops were state officials, they get salaries and everything. So the, the mon- people, desert fathers and desert mothers, they removed themselves from the so-called control of the empire and they went to desert. So I think they created their own rules and uh, Giorgio Agamben wrote the book about it. And he just explained the whole politics behind it, which is very constructive, which is not typical for Agamben because he don't offer a uh, lot of a constructive solutions in, in his thoughts. But this one was very, very interesting. And he, 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 uh, he, make all, uh, he made almost like a genealogy of monastics, monastic politics and theology behind it up to the um, Francis of Assisi and other people. So I think, I think that's, that's a strong political... Uh, alternative there because you know they share things they they do their own economy which is very alternative to the empire and and you know if you want if, if you read carefully uh, uh, empire written by Tony Negri I know what people think about it but he end the book uh, with a sentence like this the joyfulness of communist being is uh, is embodied in Francis of Assisi he's a metaphor he's the figure of activist communistic activist of the future. Uh, 
can I just uh, maybe so, supplement, if you agree, your commissioner yeah. asked you, would you also be ready, even if Jesuits are probably your death enemies yeah. and so on? I study with Jesuits. That's the really? Problem. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's okay. Bad, bad but I, I would like, nonetheless, to include into this series the, the how are they called? In reality, they were called Reducciones, Missions in Paraguay. Oh, yeah. Which is why, you know that something incredibly happened there. It was an incredibly thriving economy. Do you know if the Jesuit state of Para, uh, Paraguay were allowed to survive, we would have Guarani as uh, language. They even started to print book in native language there. And then something incredible happened. It didn't, as they like to say, oh, the utopia uh, self-destroyed itself. No! Brazil and Spain together attacked them. Yeah. It was an incredibly ruthless operation. The, the very success of Paraguay. Even, even the Vatican attacked them. I mean, Rome yeah. attacked them. Yeah. But I think that's exactly my point, that to, to think what was not thinkable before, you know, you need to have, as Jesuits, have certain form of spiritual exercise. Foucault took it from Pierre Ado. You know, certain, Foucault called it technologies of selves. You need to have certain tools for transformation of, of your desires and perception and everything. So, and monastic people, they have that. They have certain theology, certain practices. And what was good with that, and that's basically Giorgio Agamben's argument, and, and he took it from Pierado as well, it's like to combine theory and practice, forms of life and forms of discourse, and they come together. So, yes, monastic theology is not just cheesy ethics because we try to do ethics today. But Julian Rose is, I think, she's right. We don't need ethics, we need political theology. Uh, can I ask you something more? Yeah. And it's not just an, uh, 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 a horny old guy who wants to desperately prolong his sex life. Okay. I, it's not a jokeish question. Okay. It's a very serious okay. one. Okay. Can you imagine monastic life with sex? Well, that's a good question. No, it's yeah. very naive. Yeah. Please yeah. don't yeah. take me just for a horny old man. Yeah, which well, I maybe am, but that's not. Can you Im do you think that, or you maybe, yeah. do you think it a priori ex excludes? Sexual relations or? I don't think so. I think that there is some uh, communities even uh, uh, now all over the world, they live some, uh, through some monastic rules. Yeah. They have certain monastic vows, but they live together, and, and, and it's kind of monastery of open kind. So people come together, they, they do different things together in a sense. Because the if politics. you just give me yeah. sex, I would love to live in a uh, monastery okay. like okay. this. Like very vulgar. Like Roland Barthes, he wrote something on, on yeah. that. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, my it's problem with Rabelais is that I don't like all that carnival and so on, you know. He's, I but like, you, I you like order, like I don't like too you much. You know what Giorgio Gambin told us, you know, we, we have this discussion yeah. and, 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 and he said like, well, this is a parody and, and this is the most serious kind of literature because if you want to make parody of something, you really need to know that. So he says, well, Rabelais, he's the one of those guys. Who, who kind of celebrate certain kind of monastic life, Telma, yes, which is very uh, almost like hedonistic. But because do you know that also Hegel makes a parody in his uh, philosophy of history? He mentions this detail about reducciones, yeah, missions. Yeah, yeah. He claims that everything was organized there, even at 11.30 every evening, a bell did ring, reminding couples time to have sex. Yeah. No? <laughs> I mean, in a way, I would like this. You yeah. don't have these problems. Would you like to have sex? Do you have migraine or not? No, it's, it's taken care of, you know. So. 
It's a serious spiritual exercise. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice definition. Sex is a very difficult, serious spiritual exercise. Exactly. Yeah. So, maybe another. Yeah, please. Okay, so allow okay. at least so that we can claim that ladies also ask <laughs> for false democracy. <laughs> let's right. pretend that you are equal. Yeah, so we'll take Please. one more question and then there will be a book signing line. There's already a line uh, forming right over there. Thank you. Uh, so myself and uh, Yoni behind me are both Occupy oh, Wall right. Street. He's included, so we don't have to cut him off. Okay, all right. Cool. <laughs> he speaks through you. Awesome, awesome. Uh, we're both Occupy Wall Street activists and we've been preparing for a couple months for the May Day general strike. Um, and it's going to be hopefully an international strike. So we're asking you what you think the importance is of a global strike as opposed to a national strike, you know, which has occurred historically. I have, it's a wonderful question. I will tell you what is a general reflection. Unfortunately, and I've written about it, I see things have, it's very important to redeem the form of strike. Why? Because I don't know what's the situation in the United States, but in Europe, in my, it's a city, small country, Slovenia, but I don't know how it's in Croatia, but uh, the strike, I'm almost tempted to oppose strikes. You know why? Ordinary workers in private companies, they don't dare to strike. They would lose job and so no. The only, typically in Slovenia now, I'm saying this here, back there they would have lynched me. At my, I wouldn't say, we have a strike which of course I in principle support. It's again the right wing government and so on and so on. But there is nonetheless something wrong. If you look closely at it, it's the strike of the state finance middle class let's call it intellectual bourgeoisie or whatever. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's policemen who are relatively paid, policemen, teachers, university professors, and so on and so on. And if you look closely, you can clearly see that they strike precisely because they feel their position above ordinary workers in the private sphere threatened. It's really a paradoxical kind of a strike of the lower bourgeoisie being afraid to be reduced to the zero-level working class, you know. So, which is why I think, again, it's important to redeem, uh, because, again, those who are employed in private sector, they are just happy to get their jobs, they don't even dare to strike, you know. And, uh, and again, from what I was able to see, there is very minimal solidarity of this state-financed, clientelist, middle state, pe people on, on making short strikes now with those, what they call them, really suffering, unemployed, and so on and so on. It's almost a strike whose aim, of course they don't say it, but de facto aim is we want our privileges. And this is why I think it would be, this is why for me, this may amuse you, I don't buy all this bullshit progressive Hollywood liberals. But I heard about, uh, about uh, no, sorry, it was not uh, George Clooney, it was Alec Baldwin. He did nonetheless something that I found sympathetic. You remember some two, three years ago, there was a strike in Hollywood of these ordinary low-paid guys, you know, people who carry equipment around and so on. And Alec Baldwin, I was told by friends there, did something. He went from star to star and tried to mobilize them like strike now, help them. 
boycott Hollywood for these ordinary people. It's very rare that this happens, no? So what I would have said is that uh, it would be wonder what you said to rehabilitate the form of strike, to tear it out of this clientelist privilege status that, that it has now, I don't know how it is here, it has now in many countries. So I absolutely wish you all the best and also I think it's important you mentioned the internationalist connection. It is so important, this, you know, without this we are simply lost, I claim. You know, then we will be, you know, like, like my, we have to start to think in these terms that we, even if we are much more privileged, have something in common, I don't know, with those in China exploited or in Africa and so on and so on. If we don't establish some kind of minimal solidarity here, then then politics is of no interest, basically, no? But my basic advice to you would be Leninist one, not in the totalitarian sense. I'm not saying build there in the edge of Zuccotti Park a small gulag for traitors. Not that, but, uh, but organize, organize. It's important that it's not just, for example, yesterday I flew in, the day before I was in San Francisco, and they told me that in Oakland, how the movement survived. It's no longer a big movement, but they have small cooperatives, they organize things and so on. Something should remain as an organizational network. I, 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 what I detest is this big moment where we all cry how beautiful and then we go home and do our dirty job, you know. That's all I can tell you. If I say anything more, I would be bullshitting even more than I, I usual. Please. Something. It's uh, what happened in Argentina with, uh, in the beginning of the uh, 90s. They organized themselves through the certain collectives, and one of them is called Colectivo Situaciones, which is kind of famous, and they start doing what they call militant research. And this is exactly the small organizations doing things together, but in the same time, they reflected on themselves. You know, they became object of research, which is very unusual. It's not academic, it's not activist, it's something... Third, and I think this militant research is quite interesting because if you want to do some social actions, you need to prepare yourself before that. So you will spend time with people, organize them, do certain procedures, and continue. If everything fell down, you can just continue and, 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 and be with them and talk with them and exactly stay in this organization. And can I just add another, just very briefly, praising you, uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street people. You know in what sense? No, no, I'm not bluffing here. I'm very precise. I read now in a very good book on Buddhism, how we mystify Buddhism in the West. We, our first association is transcendental meditation and so on. But I read there a fact which should have been obvious to me, but it's usually neglected, that in the countries where Buddhism is really daily form of life, I don't know, Thailand, whatever, Large, large, large majority of people don't meditate. For them, Buddhism means you just follow certain rules, you know, you have your own problems, and people who meditate are more a kind of a model which presents hope to you. Like, you know, it's good to know that some people meditated and reached a certain level. I wasn't able to do it, no. And I noticed how in the same way, and don't patronize them, many people who didn't come there, to Zuccotti Park or whatever, related to you in this way. 
it, it did stir something in them up like, my God, but you are there to remind them that something can be done and so on and so on. Don't blame them. If this is maybe even one of your crucial roles, that just to be there as a living reminder to other people, you know, don't underestimate this. Herbert, Mc, Herbert McCabe called it uh, Mr. Gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, right now in the United, I mean the original uh, intended role of the general strike is to have a literal uh, shutdown of the cities of the country as a reminder to the ruling class uh, that we retain the power. Um, I don't think that's going to happen quite here yet. But um, if we look at previous successful strikes, such as janitors with justice or the Sotheby workers, um, how do we uh, retain, you know, this paradigm that the workers that we, you know, truly control ourselves? if that's the case, and how do we make sure that it becomes a general strike and not just a collection of yeah. individual specific strikes? I would focus on something else, but this is a common sense pragmatic thing. You know, let me try to think, this is very easy for me, <laughs> my mind works like that, let me try to think from the other guys, from our enemies, to imagine. If I were to be your enemy, I would have said, let me pray that your strike will succeed, so that even for one day, the life of ordinary people would be deeply perturbed, no this, no that, so that they will just be reminded what chaos there will be if state control no longer functions, you know. And my idea would have been to find creative ways to fight this. For example, there was, I don't know in what country, maybe even England, the transport strike where they did an ingenious thing, uh, in London maybe even, subway trains still run, but for free. You know, it was a wonderful thing, that it hit really only the enemy. You know, and this is, I think, important. Yes, we should remind those up how we have the power, but don't hit the wrong target. To, to, to find ways so that Ordinary people will not just, oh, again, those rich guys who have time to be, to be, to be in Zuccotti Park now, they want even to annoy, to, to perturb our daily lives, to find creative ways to prevent this kind of perception of the strike. For me, at least, this would have been the focus of it. That's very helpful. Thank you. The, oh, thank you, my God. <laughs>